Let me read Psalm 63, and then we'll jump into it. It is, I would guess, a favorite of many of ours. It has been a favorite of mine for a long time. Psalm 63. I want to read the the subheading because I think knowing the context that David tells us he's in the wilderness. So whatever else we know about David when he's praying this, he is not. He doesn't have his feet up in a penthouse in Manhattan. He does not have a big, good meal in his stomach. He is not enjoying vacation. He is in the wilderness. He is hungry. He is scared. And he is weak and exhausted. That's the context for this psalm. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. And because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with you, God, as with fat and rich food, which he does not have access to right now. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, even though, humanly speaking, he just wants water and food going into his mouth. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, many older translations would say, follows hard after you, pursues you, even as your right hand upholds me. Now, most of us would like the psalm to end right there, and yet it continues. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, that is David here, shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord, Psalm 63. One way to think about that dissonant um, final three or four verses where he just turns to enemies very negatively, is that this whole psalm, if it's right there in the title of my sermon, this whole psalm, if you had to sum it up in one word, is about desire. And let's just say that David in the first eight verses represents what desire should look like, and these enemies look like what desire ought not to look like. Desire at the expense of other people. Desire that hurts other people. And so this psalm is about desire. Um, You could call these kinds of psalms, of which Psalm 63 with seven or eight others in the psalms, you could call it desire psalms. I would guess, and and if you've ever heard me teach on the psalms, I do mention this every once in a while, that I just, I I won't mention why right now. I do encourage Christians not to cherry pick when you're reading and praying through the psalms too much, not just grab your favorite ones and ignore all the ones that don't resonate with you as much, but just to name it out loud, I would bet many of us, and this is certainly true of me, that if we're cherry picking, if we're going to psalms that we feel like just resonate with us more, that psalms like this are probably the ones we more readily go to. I'm just going to call them desire psalms right now. Verses 1 and 2 again. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you. I've seen you in your sanctuary. I'm, I'm gazing at your glory and your power. Your steadfast love is better than life. What a beautiful, powerful statement. Here is a very quick selection and survey of what I would imagine for many of us, and I think many Christians and Jews throughout history, tends to be at the heart of why we love the Psalms. Let me give you a quick survey. Psalm 16, verse 11. 
You, O God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 26, verse 8, Annie Dillard in her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, American Childhood, I remember reading this in college and reviewing it for my college paper, and this is the, what do you call it, the epigram, kind of before the book begins. Psalm 26, verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I love where you are, and I love where your glory dwells. Psalm 27, very next psalm. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You have said to me, O Lord, seek my face, and my heart says to you, your face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of human beings take refuge in the shadow of your wings, and they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. Let me just name something out loud. This is on the surface the language of hedonism. This is the language of desire, of pleasure, of happiness, of joy. And many people, whether they grew up in the church or not, have a sense that religion, whatever it is, is the opposite of this. Religion is duty. Religion is saying no to what you want. Religion is doing what you're supposed to do, even though you don't want to do it. And here is this language in the Psalms of desire. I've said this for many years. I'm going to keep saying it now because I haven't done it yet. Lord willing, at some point, I am going to preach, maybe this year, maybe not, an entire sermon on this one verse, Psalm 37, verse 4. I bet this is a favorite for many of you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your hearts. When I preach on this, on this psalm, on this one verse, I'm going to say two things. One, this is an amazing promise, and two, this is a really scary promise. Because it doesn't say, start with the desires of your heart, then delight in God as a means to an end, and he will give them to you. It says, delight in the Lord, and whatever your desires happen to be on the other side of that, he will satisfy them. That's not what most people sign up for. Um, one of the points I'm going to make later on is that one of the things that really separates these psalms from hedonism, and, and it's honestly the, the definition of idolatry, which according to scripture is the great medicine, the sin underneath all the other sins, the main thing that's wrong with us is idolatry is using God as a means to an end. Idolatry is I'm going to do this towards God so that I get this other thing I want more. That's not what these Psalms are about. Um, Psalm 40, which the writer of Hebrews much later on in the New Testament will quote to describe Jesus. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written on my heart. I don't just do your will, I delight to do it. We just sang this, and I think we're going to sing it after the Lord's table in a few minutes. Psalm 42, opening two verses. As a deer pants, longs, yearns for flowing streams of water, so pants, yearns, longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the God who is alive. When shall I come and see God face to face? End of Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you, O God? And there is nothing on the entire earth that I desire that compares to you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Everything else might fall apart, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 84, very similar to Psalm 63, another favorite probably of many of us. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. 
O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the God who is alive. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper a janitor, a minimum wage worker in the house of God than a king or a queen anywhere else in the world. That's a strong statement of desire and value. I could quote so many others, but I'll quote one from the very end of the psalm, Psalm 145. God fulfills the desire of those who fear him and trust him. Augustine begins his famous confessions, his autobiography, which I talked about last week with Psalm 18. He begins with maybe the most famous extra-biblical statement in all of church history from a Christian, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. Our hearts are unhappy until they find their happiness in you. Our hearts are longing until they find satisfaction in you. I remember I don't quote him a whole lot um, these days as I get older. No particular reason to that. But um, if you want to know autobiographically how I have become the person, the pastor I am today, one of the things you should know is in 1999, I was 20 years old. I'm aware that some of you were maybe not even born in 1999 or just coming in. Uh, In 1999, I was in between my sophomore and my junior year in college. I'd become a Christian a year and a half before in college, my freshman year. And I was back here in New York City with what used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, um, doing ministry with other college students in the city all summer long. And in 1999, as I look back, one of the providential moments in my Christian life is I don't remember who it was, but somebody put in my hands a copy of a book by John Piper called Desiring God. And the subtitle, and even though I had not grown up religious and I had not even like been religious personally, um, spiritually oriented in my own life, I knew enough about philosophy and the history of human thought to know that when I read the subtitle, which is Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, I knew enough to say, might as well call yourself a Christian atheist. Might as well call yourself a Christian misanthrope. Like, Christians are not hedonists. These are two opposite systems. I would argue today, I would encourage us not to use the language of hedonism to describe what we're doing, because I think it's so easily misunderstood. And yet the whole book, and if this is a topic and a psalm that resonates with you, you want to get into more, let me just encourage you, read Desiring God by John Piper. And and as we jump into this, I'm just going to go through three things. The meaning of human desire The second thing will be how our desires go wrong, bad desire. And the third one will be how in Christ our desires are liberated, redeemed, transformed. Um, Let me just say that as we read Psalm 63 or as you hear all of these excerpts of the Psalms I just read to you, I would guess that two responses, one of two or maybe both, tend to arise for us. Assuming that you've heard these before, if you've never heard these before, the response you might have is, that's in the Bible? Um, So... Maybe that's where you are, like just surprised that this is what scripture emphasizes. But assuming that you knew that some of this language is there in the Psalms, I'll bet that if you're anything like me, you you go back and forth between two responses to these Psalms. One is positive, it's aspirational, it's man, that's, that's what I want. That's what I want my experience of God to look like. I want to have joy in God. I want to feel like my heart's desires are satisfied in God's presence. I I long for this picture to be a picture of my life. There's attraction when you read these Psalms. And at the same time, there is negatively discouragement. 
There is a sense of that is a million miles away from what I experience on a daily basis. That is not my experience, maybe at all. It is certainly at best a rare minority experience to feel like I am more satisfied in God than I am in other things. That I am awash in longings for God that I express to him and he satisfies. There is a sense of of this being painful and out of reach. Many years later, John Piper, probably 20 years after he wrote that book, Desire, God realized that even though this is a beautiful picture in his intentions, that it was so discouraging to so many Christians who responded to it by saying, well, I guess I'm a terrible Christian then, that he wrote what he would now say is the most important book he ever wrote, When I Don't Desire God. And so that could be a good book to read as well, because what you do with that is as important. And so I don't want to give the impression that a faithful Christian is somebody who's on cloud nine all the time. That's not true. And we'll all be all over the place in different ways, in different seasons, depending on our background, depending on our temperament, all of that. But this is what we should aspire to. This is what we should long for. This is what we should aim at. On the other hand, it's also true, and you all know this, most of you probably know it even better than I do, um, that we live in a culture that is awash in desire, that is obsessed with desire, that encourages us to desire things that we didn't even desire five minutes ago, and then teaches us that we can't live without it. We live in a culture that platforms desire. We live in a culture that constantly appeals to desire for who you are and what you should do and what your life should be about. Upward mobility, entertainment, advertising. We live in a culture that encourages us to center our desires 24-7 and to make them the center of our lives and the good life. And so our culture also platforms these and centers these in a way that can resonate with some things that scripture is saying, but also be deeply, deeply problematic for it. Some of you might know this name. There was a a famous thinker in the second half of the 20th century named René Girard. And René Girard is famous for a lot of things, but he's most famous for a theory that he came up with, with what really animates groups of human beings together socially. And the name of his theory was mimetic desire. Mimetic is a Greek word where we get imitation from. That is that most of us have the sense that what I'm desiring right now is just what I would always desire no matter what. But actually what I'm doing is I'm learning from other people what I should desire and copying them. And I am learning to desire what I think I want based on patterns of imitation, and therefore it leads to all kinds of inauthenticity, all kinds of conflict, all kinds of identity crisis. We are arguably the cultural moment right now that draws the closest link between desire and identity than any group in the history of the world. And yet, at the same time, we are increasingly characterized by what some commentators would call protean personalities, that is, people who are constantly shifting their identities every two to three years and and kind of coming out with a new brand, coming out with a new sense of who they are, and they're constantly shifting who they are because desires are always shifting. Desires are unstable. Desires are fickle. Desires change from season to life. As you look at human history, I know this is a very broad way to put it, but in general, you see two reactions to the presence, the power, positively, destructively, of human desire in history. Let's call one the stoic response. I'm going to use a couple of groups from the ancient world, which is desire is dangerous. Desire is a problem. Desire is going to blow things up in society and in your life. And so your fundamental response to desire should be to quell it, to master it, 
to say no to it and to do what you're supposed to instead of that. Let's call that the stoic response very broadly. The other response, and a lot of people would say that this is the philosophy, the worldview of the ancient world that we most closely resemble today, which is the Epicurean response. Um, Epicureanism is not hedonism per se, but it does say the essence of a good life is the satisfaction of what you desire right now. And that's the great quest. That's the great goal. That's the real difference between those who are happy and unhappy, those who are winners and losers, those who are comedies and those who are tragedies, the satisfaction of desires. Now, Epicureanism is very different from hedonism in that it puts more emphasis than we do today, not on the fulfillment of everything you want positively, but more on what makes you anxious, what makes you afraid, where is the source of pain in your life, and try to stay away from that. Epicureanism focuses more on that, but it still puts the focus on the good life is the life where desire is satisfied and where bad desires don't kind of catch up to you. And so what I want to do in a couple of minutes before we come back to Psalm 63 is first just talk about the meaning of desire, which is not a Christian theme in general, then the role of the um, the, the reality of bad desire, and then come back to how this comes into our faith. There is a lot of ways you could probably define desire in the, in the life of human beings, and I'm not an anthropologist or a sociologist. I'm not going to try to be an expert on this or give you a lecture on this. But, but three, three areas seem to be connected to desire when I think about it. The first is this. Someone who desires is someone who is in need. Desire assumes that you are dependent on something outside of you, that you cannot provide yourself, that you are in need of. If I don't drink, I'm thirsty. If I don't eat, I am hungry. If I'm not around other human beings, I get lonely. To desire is to become conscious and aware that I am profoundly needy, that I am profoundly dependent on things outside of my own subjectivity, my own resources. Very related to that, but I think different. To desire is to become aware that I am profoundly empty, or I often run towards empty, and I need to be fulfilled. I need to be filled up. That is that there is a vulnerability to those who desire. That left to ourselves, even in our happiest moments, the older you get, you realize you're just resetting the clock until you're unhappy again. You're just resetting the clock until you're hungry and thirsty and tired or lonely or depressed again. Um, now, if, if all you talked about was need and emptiness, dependence on others, vulnerability, one is it would just sound unfortunate that we desire um, but it would also be something that you could potentially say a flower or a tree or a plant desires because a flower, a tree, anything that's alive has needs. Anything that's alive has an emptiness that needs to be filled up or else it dies. And so here is the third one, and I think the most important one, is that desire is connected to love. Desire is connected to love. There is a great book by a Catholic theologian named Sebastian Moore, and it has a great title. The title of the book is Jesus, the Liberator of Desire. And he gives one of the best, I don't think exhaustive, but quasi-definitions of desire I've ever read. He says, human desire is love trying to happen. Human desire is love that's trying to happen that we're going out from ourselves to try to connect, to try to love and to be loved, to try to experience beauty and goodness and intimacy. Desire is love trying to happen. And if you think about these three things, needs that need 
dependence on something outside of yourself to be met, emptiness that, that you're vulnerable and, and kind of need something else to fill you up in love that needs to be given and received, that, that here's a very simple way to put it, and I don't know if you noticed this as I read Psalm 63, the word that repeats the most in Psalm 63 is life. Desire is about life. If you have no desire, you are not alive. If you have desire and it is never satisfied, you are literally going to die, but you also feel like you're dead. The seasons in my life, and many of you will be able to resonate here in one way or another, the seasons in my life that have been the most difficult by far have been seasons, one, of extended depression, where everything is gray. It's not just that there's not desire satisfied. It's like I can't even desire. I don't even want anything. I just feel dead. And seasons of chronic pain and sickness where my body feels so terrible that I can't even imagine wanting to eat or to drink or this. Those seasons have been the hardest seasons in my life in part because it's not just that I can't get what I desire. I can't even really desire in those seasons. And so desire is connected to life. Your love, O Lord, is better than life. The word for soul and or spirit, anytime it shows up in Psalm 63, it's actually the word for life. And, and so one writer says, here's what desires are in the life of the human being, they are the GPS of the human heart. People don't act or move or do anything different than what they're doing now unless desires prompt them. Desires move us. Um, the, the Bible often uses language, sometimes positively, more often negatively, that people follow their desires. It's like you're sitting there, hunger arises, and you follow it to the kitchen. You're sitting there, you're lonely, and you follow it to the internet, or you follow it to your friends hang up, that, that we are constantly following our desires and how we act, and what we do, that's not necessarily bad, but it is certainly very, very dangerous. And so as I go into bad desire here in a second, let me say this very clearly, because this is, I think, one of the most misunderstood parts of Christianity, and often our fault as Christians for understanding it poorly, communicating it poorly. I'm going to say some really harsh negative stuff about the role of desire when it's twisted in our lives in a minute, but let me say this very unambiguously first. The first and primary thing that Christianity has to say about desire is that it is good. It's that it is created by God. It's that it is God's intention for the world. God himself is characterized by desire. Now, because he's creator, not creature, he is not characterized by need. He is not characterized by emptiness, but he is characterized by love, and therefore desire is part of the way God experiences himself, reality, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so here is, let me be even more bold, and, and I am going to qualify this because left by itself, this can be unhelpful, but if all I say is, hey, the big problem in your life is desire, which in one sense is true, that will also be misunderstood and twisted. Let me say this very boldly, very clearly, and then I'll w not walk it back, but I'll qualify it later. You have never had a desire that was not good, and you have never desired an object that was not unambiguously good. And so the problem is never your desire per se, and the problem is never what you desire per se. The problem comes in not in what we desire or in that we desire, the problem comes in in how we desire. 
eating too much when you should have been content with this meal, needing this and being willing to hurt or harm somebody else to get it. It's how we desire that all of the problems arise. One thing our culture is not good at, both in the conservative and liberal, religious and secular fields, is we're not patient enough to be subtle and nuanced about anything. You cannot really grasp desire unless you are willing to be subtle and patient and nuanced. If you simply, and this, I even said this a second ago, if your primary or only response to desire is bad, dangerous, or if your only desire is good, should be affirmed, you are going to commit suicide in either of those directions. There is so much subtlety and nuance that is needed here. With that said, the primary thing Christianity says about desire and that which is desired is that it is good. Not that it's bad, not that it's problematic, even though it becomes that. And so let's talk for a couple of minutes about, well, then why does desire cause so much harm in our lives? Why is desire so often warned against negatively in Scripture? And it is, why is desire so connected to evil into pain, into heartbreak. Um, Arguably in the New Testament, the main noun, the main uh, word that is connected to us as desiring creatures is this word that you probably know especially from Paul's letters. If you've read them before, Galatians, Romans, Corinthians, places like that, which is our flesh. That, That we should walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And yet, if you go back and you read Paul, this is not the topic today, the Spirit desires as much as the flesh does. The, the life of the spirit is a life of desire as much as the flesh is. But here is, I think, a good way to think about the flesh. When I was a kid, there was a great 80s rock band from England called The Smiths. Some of you will still remember them. They're great. You should listen to them on Spotify. And one of their song titles is, I always joke, it's the theme song of our flesh. And the title of the song is, Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want. And every single one of you is singing that song all the time. And the song, that song that you sing, is the root of everything else that has gone wrong in your life. It's not that I desire. It is not that I desire that. It is this insistence that the most important quest in the universe is, please, 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 let me get what I want. And that is the essence of what is wrong with us. I want you to hear a passage that is very famous to the point of being invisible to us, being caricatured by us, and I want you to hear it in a new way. Um, The story of the fall of human beings rebelling against God in Genesis 3 clearly is there to illustrate what's gone wrong, what's wrong with us, the problem, and I want you to hear these two verses new, fresh, right now in light of Psalm 63. Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree, which had been prohibited, which had been forbidden, and everything else richly provided for them to enjoy, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she broke the command, she took, she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was right there too, and he also ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths, and they began to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord their God. What's the story there? Bad desire. Desire that is out of control. Now, is it okay to desire that tree? Sure. Desire for food, that tree is beautiful, and yet it's in a context where God says, all these other ones, but not this. And it's like, I don't care. What I want is the center of reality. And they ate and everything 
was destroyed. There was catastrophe. And so here is a very simple way to put it. If you look at any problem in your life, what is happening to you, what you are doing, or even more broadly, in the world, in a culture, in a nation, in history, if you understand this, you will be able to see that underneath every other problem is a very simple story of desire that is out of place, desire that is inordinate. Every Um, thing that goes wrong with us. It could be with sex, with money, with power. It can be addiction. It can be slavery. It can be war and violence. It can be racism that underneath all the awful things, greed that people do, underneath them are one, good desires for things that should be desired, but out of context. Too much, not there, and a refusal to accept the limits, a refusal to ever say no to what we want. I tend to think about this mostly in marriage, and as I do premarital counseling, I I recommend this all the time, but it's all of life. Um, Desire is talked about in scripture, probably most often in wisdom literature, and many of you will remember this, but again, I want you to hear it new right now and fresh. The brother of Jesus, James, says this in his letter in James chapter 4, friends, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that are at war within you? You desire, but you do not have, and so you murder one another. You covet, but you cannot obtain, and so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. And when you do ask God, you don't receive what you want because you are asking him with wrong motives. He's a means to an end so that you may spend them on your sinful pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell within us? But a word of hope. But God gives us more grace. That doesn't need to be the end of the story. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's a lot of things I could say about that passage, and that's not our sermon text today. But let me just point this out. The the, uh, arising at the end of the distinction between humility and pride the humble and the arrogant, that is not a distinction we think about much today. Um, It might be that we have some sense left over that pride and arrogance is bad, but we are not a culture that actively aspires that we would be humble. That's not a top 10 value of hardly anybody in our culture. Here is a way to think about humility and pride. The difference is not one person desires and the other doesn't. It's not that one person says yes to what they desire and the other person says no. It is that in the presence of the desire, here's the difference. The proud build everything else around that as the center, and those who are humble decenter their desires and put them second to God and their neighbor. Someone who is humble is someone who has some critical distance towards their own desires, who does not prioritize them as the center of their life, who says that they're good, who values them, who insofar as it can honor God and not wrong my neighbor, seeks to fulfill them. But someone who is humble, among other things, we're making a statement about how they relate to their desires. We're making a statement about how they respond to their desires. Someone who is arrogant is not someone who desires more than someone else, who desires differently than someone else. It is someone who is zero 
zeroed in above all else on the satisfaction of their desires. That is the essence of pride. That is the essence of arrogance. It's another sermon for another time, but I would argue that this is ultimately the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the foolish and the wise, between the good and evil. It is not, in spite of what we often think in our culture, that the wicked are really animated by desire and the righteous are all about duty. The righteous are filled with desire. It is not that the fools just do whatever they want and the wise don't care and they don't desire anything. Rather, it's this, that in the presence of desires, I would put it this way, presence and authority on the one hand and desire on the other. Here is the way I would just break this down and I encourage you to think about this in your own life. The wicked, the evil, the foolish um, is someone who treats their desires as that which is ultimately authoritative. The presence of their desires, literally in Psalm 10, is what they bow down to and serve. The righteous are those who treat the presence and the authority of God as that which is most to be desired. And so desire is just as much a part of the righteous as it is the wicked, but it works in a different way. It works in a slightly um, different response. And so this is the scariest thing I'm going to say today. And I'm going to get to Psalm 63 and the stuff for desiring God. I think you all know this, at least on an abstract level, but I want you to really hear it. Every single person in this room, including me, there is a potential future of you being profoundly evil. Of you being a profoundly evil human being. Some of you might be right now. Many of us used to be. And likely some are not now who will become later on. If that is your story, what will be underneath it is not the strength of your desires. What will be underneath it is not what you desire. What will be underneath it is that your desires are more important than God and your neighbor. And that will be the root of all evil in your life. All of the idolatry you commit, all the harm you do to others. One of the, one of the, if I had more time, I'd give more examples. One of the stories I wish we knew better in our culture, both as Christians and in general, is that before the rise of the slave trade in Europe, in Christian nations, and with the church playing a very central role in the 15 and the 16 and 1700s, for a thousand years, Europe had wiped out slavery because of the church. Every Christian nation had outlawed slavery a long time ago. The church taught against it. It was gone from all of these lands. And as other lands become reachable through travel, as the resources and the wealth in other places arise, and as the manpower that's available is not enough or would slow down, the desire for more, desire for greed, brought slavery back to Europe in the 1500s, 1600s. What's underneath that is not racism nakedly, even though that absolutely becomes part of it. What's underneath it is not this or that. What's underneath it are desires that cannot be said no to. And anything is possible as long as it will get us what we desire. Everything that goes wrong in human societies has very innocent, even good desires underneath them. But the unwillingness and the inability to say no to them and so we'll, we'll say this just in a minute at the end, but let me just say now, part of, not the main part, but a big part of the Christian life is learning to say no to what you want. 
a big part of the Christian life is saying, not here, not now, maybe later, maybe never, but God, neighbor, that's the center. And one of the, I think the main reason, none of us probably pray as much as we should. None of us probably read the Bible as much as we should, but I'll bet a high percentage of the Christians in this room have not fasted ever or in years. And the reason fasting is gone from Western culture is saying no to our own desires has no place in the way we live. I would encourage you very strongly to fast on a regular basis, once a week, twice a week. And not like Facebook, although that might be there too, but food, water. Learn to say no to what the urges of your body scream at you saying, unless I have this, I can't be happy. Unless I have this, I can't rest. Unless I have this, I can't do this. Part of becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian is learning to die to what you feel like you need in the moment in order to love God, in order to love your neighbor. Now, resurrection's the center of the story, not death. The yes of God's grace is the center, not the no of sin, but the no has to be there or it will ruin everything else. And so learn to say no, learn to be humble, learn to be righteous, learn to be wise. I often say this in premarital counseling and then we'll go to Psalm 63 and end. The really interesting thing about every single one of you is not what you desire, and it's not how much you desire it, and it's not that you desire this or this, it is what you do in response to your desires. That is the most interesting thing about every single one of you. That is a better indicator of what your marriages will look like, of what money will look like, of what pornography and sex will or will not look like, of what being willing or not being willing to wrong other human beings to get what you want will look like. It is not what you desire or how you desire or when you, it is what you do next in response to the presence of a desire that comes up and yet arises in a context where there's a no connected to it from God. Whether because this is not to be desired there or because it would hurt somebody else. And so pay attention not so much to what you desire, but to what you do with your desires, to how you respond to them. Now, if this is where I left you, this would be a depressing sermon because this is all, here's the ways it can go wrong, here's what you need to do. Here is ultimately why I've been clearing the ground this way. Um, I hope that every single one of us grows, and and this is where I'm going to end in two minutes with this resolution, that by God's grace, make this our, I know it's on January 1st, but we are kind of going into a new school year and the academic calendar is so central for us. What if your great resolution for the next 12 months is God, by your grace and through your spirit, I want to desire you more one year from now than I do now. I want to be able to say no to what is contrary to your will and to the contrary to the opposition of the good of my neighbor more than I am able to right now. How would that happen? How would that come about? And we can talk about that more in the future, but I would just point to Psalm 63 begins in the wilderness. Here is what will have to happen in part for you to learn how to desire God is you will have to not always have your belly filled. You will have to not always get what you want. People who learn to desire God, learn to desire God primarily in the wilderness. Learn to desire God as they say no to other desires. If you, somebody's going to take you out to the greatest steakhouse in Manhattan tomorrow night, and you, spl- and you just you know, gorge yourself on Big Macs and McDonald's two hours beforehand, you've now ruined your ability to experience this moment. Part of being able to desire God is saying no to things that get in the way of that. 
But most of all, and here's C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. I can send this around later. He says, fallen human beings are always trying to invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt to be happy, to be satisfied apart from God, has come nearly everything bad in human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, different economic classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of human beings trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say, now God designed human beings to run on himself. He himself is the fuel that our spirits were designed to burn on and be satisfied with, or the food that our spirits were designed to feed on. And he makes a strong claim that I think is at the heart of Psalm 63. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without him being at the center. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing that is the key to human history. That is a very strong claim from C.S. Lewis. And so Psalm 63, here is the very simple question it raises for us. I'm coming all the way back around. I would imagine if you've been paying attention at all to this and to your own life, I'm going to articulate something. I think you've got to have one question at this point. Tell me how, Nick. How do I desire God more than sex? How do I desire God more than social status for my job? How do I desire God more than a good relationship or money or power or this? How do I do this? And let me just encourage you to notice a couple of things about Psalm 63. One is that don't wait until you are in an ideal season. Desiring God always starts here and now in all of the brokenness of the wilderness. Don't say, I'll I'll pray, I'll I'll read scripture, I'll, I'll pursue God once my belly's not hungry anymore. Once I'm not anxious about my job anymore. Once I'm not restless with singleness, but I'm in a relationship, then it will start. If you do that, you forget that it's in the wilderness that God teaches us and forms us to be passionate lovers of himself and desire him. The second one, and Adam and, and Haley had to sing the song a few minutes ago. It was new to me. Um, but, but as an aspiration, as a goal, do not relate to God as a means to an end. Do not come to him, comma, so that something else happens. If you learn to worship God, if you learn to love God, I promise you a million benefits will arise in your life, but you do not pursue God for the sake of those things. Um, John Piper, who I mentioned at the beginning, um, used to use this great analogy, I love this one, um, that, that if a man shows up, a husband shows up on the doorstep of his wife on their anniversary or on Valentine's Day, and he's holding flowers, and he tells her, I got a babysitter, I'm going to take you out for dinner, we're going to go on a date. And if she says, why? And if his response is, I take no pleasure in this at all, it is strictly my duty as your husband. I'm saying no to everything I would rather do tonight in order to prioritize you. She does not say, oh, that's so sweet. Instead, she slaps him in the face. And if he says instead, because there is nothing I would rather do than be with you here right now. She does not say, oh, you selfish jerk, always thinking about yourself. Our desire ought to be for God himself because of who he is, because we're in his presence and not because he can do this for us or because he's told us we're supposed to do it. 
Those things can be guardrails along the way, but we need to learn to come into God's presence. Okay, so, so that maybe clears out some, some ambiguity or, or gets rid of some negative stuff, but it still doesn't help me desire something that I don't usually want to desire, Nick. So what do I do with that? And I want you to notice that in Psalm 63, verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. Verse 6, I remember you upon my bed. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. What Rene Girard, with mimetic desire, understood is that you are not destined to stay with the desires you have right now. In fact, most of what you desire, you were taught and formed to desire. You didn't just wake up and have them. And so whether it's something in sex and in romantic relationships is often called the male gaze, or whether it's just the recognition that all desire is based upon a previous vision of the good life, is I would say this, why would you expect to desire God if you are not gazing upon him? If you're not beholding him, if you're not staring, if you're not envisioning his beauty and seeing it, desire doesn't just happen, it happens in response to looking. It happens in response to beholding. It happens in response to remembering. It happens in response to, if I get this, then that will happen. Well, all of a sudden, I want to go to an Ivy League school. None of you was born wanting to go to an Ivy League school. None of you was born wanting to live like this or live here. You have seen something, rightly or wrongly, that this is the good life. I would say, open your eyes and look where God is. In the sanctuary, in redemptive history, in scripture, think about God, hold him before you. Arguably, what both the preaching of the word and the sacraments are about week after week is holding God up before you and saying, he is better than anything else. He is better than anything else. But I would say, if you are waiting for desire to happen, as you both stuff yourself and other stuff and don't even notice how beautiful he is, if you can't even articulate why he's beautiful, why he's good, desire doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so I would say, stare, look, um, gaze. Then I would also say, it's true that, uh uh-uh, just to, to be dark, whatever it is, whether it's addiction to drugs and alcohol or pornography, whether it's always needing more money, the actual expression of an experience of something not only satiates desires, but it also continues to deepen them. And so every week as you come to church, at, in your daily life with God, don't just think about your desire for God, express it, articulate it. Try raising your hand sometime in music. Try holding out your hands to express your emptiness and your neediness. As you, try speaking with your lips in private what you're only thinking about that express what you desire about God. And notice that the expression of it, the articulation of it, the responding to God actually itself increases desire for God, even as it often fulfills desire that is often there. And then I would just say, finally, um, and, and it's connected to this, verse one, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. In the American church today, and this has been true for a while, we tend to use language of seeking God for someone who's not yet a Christian. Um, I often say this, I know this is a stereotype, I'm I'm a guy, I'm not going to speak to a woman's experience at all, but it does seem to be the classic flaw of a man that when he begins to desire a woman, he gazes upon her beauty, physically, intellectually, spiritually, relationally, and he begins to desire her, that he puts great effort into the pursuit of this woman, and then once he is in a relationship with her, he gets bored and bored and more bored. 
Seeking God begins after you become a Christian. It doesn't end there. It is the beginning of a lifelong pursuit of God. And so I would say this, are you, are you seeking God? Are you pursuing him? Or are you taking him for granted like a bad husband? Are you just turning on the TV and ignoring him in the living room like a bad husband? Seeking God is the business of those who are already in covenant with God. It's not what you do to get into covenant with God primarily. If anything, the difference between a Christian and non-Christian is that God has sought us, not that we have sought him more. And so as we just end and go to the Lord's table, and I'll connect it to the Lord's table, which in a very real sense is all about desire, I would just encourage you, are you saying no to that which gets in the way of desire for God and and, and harms your neighbor? And are you seeking after God? Are you gazing upon him? And are you expressing desire for him? If you don't, and if you're not, it is not rocket science that you want a zillion things more than God. Learn to desire God. The church is many things. We're going to talk about this for the next three months. Why do we gather together? But the church is a school of formation. It is a hospital for sinners, and it is a place that, here's a way to think about church that maybe you thought before, a church exists for the re-education of human desire, so that we would learn to desire what we were made for. It doesn't happen automatically. This is a school. This is a hospital. Every element of the worship service, everything we do when we gather together is to help us to learn to desire loving God and loving our neighbor more than the satisfaction of what our belly wants right now. And so let's pray that we would be people who can pray Psalm 63 and, and know what we're praying because this is our experience. Pray with me.